I will say greetings to each of you. It's good to be here with you uh, this weekend. Been looking forward to it. Wasn't sure exactly what to expect, so I guess we'll find out together as we go through the weekend. Uh, Clayton mentioned something about an introduction. I'm not sure necessarily how to introduce myself. Uh, he mentioned my name, uh, Nate Bang, and I come here from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania with my wife and family. We have five children. The oldest is 17 and the youngest is nine, and uh, they're along with us here this weekend. Grew up in uh, Gettysburg area of Pennsylvania, and uh, some of the maybe just mention a few uh, aspects that have had a very significant um, influence on my life. As a young person, I spent several years in uh, VS and also uh, several different uh, times to Bible schools, different places, and they have been uh, very, uh, very influential and a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, forming part of my life. And then uh, later also spent some time in Romania. We lived there as a family for a number of years. I spent a total of 12 years in Romania, and then we moved back to Pennsylvania about eight years ago. Thought I might um, give a little bit of background as to what brought me here this weekend. I mentioned some time in uh, VS, and uh, I spent a couple years in, uh, with Northern Youth Programs in Ontario, and that's, I think, where I first learned to know Rich, which some of you know, Rich Bowman. And uh, then later at SMBI, Bible School, got to know him better and um, spent quite a bit of time together as young people, uh, various activities, enjoyed uh, doing things together. And it was during that time that I was asked to teach school after I'd come back from, from VS. And I agreed to take that position teaching and I still remember when I told Rich the first time that I'm planning to teach school. And he looked at me and he said, you teach school? They sure must be scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> so I'm really sorry to disappoint you. But when Rich called to hear this, I could only that he was scraping the bottom of the barrel. He was so desperate, I didn't have the heart to say no. So that's why I'm here. Our theme for this weekend is Meet Me on the Mountain. I wonder if that electricity blink affected things here. Looks like the projector isn't on. Meet Me on the Mountains. And each of the topic for this weekend is, is tied in some way to that mountain theme. Now, I enjoy mountains. Uh, I think a lot of us enjoy mountains in some way or another. I enjoy camping in the mountains, hiking, climbing in the mountains. Uh, some mountains are obviously beyond my ability to climb, but I enjoy reading about those who have. I've read several books about people who have climbed Mount Everest. I'm just curious, how many of you read a, a book or an account of anyone that climbed Mount Everest? Anyone? Okay, quite a few of you. So you're somewhat familiar with the challenges and the difficulties that people face when they do that. Uh, Mount Everest is one of the most inhospitable places on this earth. Uh, you will find neither plant nor animal that will help you to survive. There's no fuel to burn 
And at the top of the mountain, the air is so thin that you can scarcely get enough oxygen to breathe. Uh, climbers carry oxygen with them. Temperatures can reach minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, which obviously is quite bone chilling. And even in July, the average temperatures are below zero. When the jet stream passes over the mountain a certain time of the year, the wind can be 170 mile an hour. So you just try to picture that. Those cold temperatures with that kind of wind, and according to one author, 10 feet of snow can fall in the blink of an eye. And at one point in the climb, climbers follow this narrow ridge, and a misstep in one direction, you would plummet or tumble 6,000 feet into Nepal, and a few steps in the other direction, you would fall 8,000 feet into Tibet. So which would you rather do, fall 6,000 feet or 8,000 feet? Climbers joke that the 8,000 foot fall would be better because you'd have a few more seconds left to live till you hit the bottom. Probably doesn't make that much difference. In 1924, there was a British man, a mountain climber, by the name of George Mallory, who was making attempts to climb Mount Everest. No one had ever done it before. And he was making attempts to reach the summit. And someone asked him, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? And his response became very well known. Because it is there. To him, that was reason enough. The mountain's there, so let's climb it. Well, Mallory died in his attempt. He did not successfully make it to the top and back. It was 29 years before Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay, a local person, actually reached the summit and returned safely. Now, we don't really know if anyone reached the summit before that or not, but if they did, they did not make it back safely. But Mallory's words, because it is there, live on, and a lot of people still use that today, people who enjoy climbing mountains. Now, I don't know if you can identify with that or not, but there's something within me that when I see a mountain, there's something within me that wants to stand on top of that mountain. Just uh, the accomplishment, the challenge of getting there. Uh, Romania has quite a few mountains, some rather significant mountains, and uh, one time we had a... Uh, a visitor that was uh, visiting some families in Romania. And we passed by this uh, fairly significant mountain peak that uh, I mentioned to him that uh, I climbed that mountain, stood in the top of that mountain. And he looked at that mountain and he said, now what in the world made you do that? He said, there's not a cell in my body that would wish to climb that mountain. And I thought, you poor man, you don't know what you're missing. So I don't know which side of that uh, spectrum you find yourself this morning. But I'm hoping that by the time this weekend is over, you have a desire to climb mountains. And I'm not talking just about physical mountains, but I'm talking about spiritual mountains, because there are spiritual mountains to climb. And there are things that we can accomplish as we walk with God on those mountains. Our theme verse for this weekend is found in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Come ye... Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. So that's our desire for this weekend, to go to the mountain of the Lord, allow him to teach us, and then in our response to that, we will walk in his paths. 
Now, you notice the, the three aspects of this verse. There's kind of three parts of it. First of all, it says, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And that kind of summarizes our, our first topic for this morning. The title of the topic will be Called to the Mountain. We are invited to come to the mountain. The next part of the verse is, And he will teach us of his ways. So when we, were, when we are on the mountain, we want to meet God. That's the title of our second and third section, meeting God on the mountain. We want to meet him and allow him to show us who he is. Learn about God and learn of his ways, learn of his intention in our life. And then finally, we will walk in his paths. And that's what we want to address tomorrow, the two sessions tomorrow, walking in his paths. So for this morning, the title of the message is Called to the Mountain. I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read several verses here, kind of as a springboard for our message. Uh, some of these verses are, are quite familiar. Matthew 28, the, uh, the last verses of the chapter. Matthew 28, I'll begin reading at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, if I would ask you, what did I just read? Probably the response that comes to your mind is the Great Commission. And if I would ask you, well, what is the Great Commission? you would probably respond with these verses, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. I'm guessing that's where thought is going. And if that is so, I think we're missing something significant in these verses. See, often when we read these verses, we jump over verses 16 and 17 in our thoughts to get to what we consider the real emphasis. Looks like the electricity is uh, giving us some challenges here this morning. But I'd like to focus a little bit here on verses 16 and 17. See, first of all, Jesus called his disciples to a mountain. They responded when they saw him. They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them. See, Jesus was speaking here to a very specific group of people. He was not speaking to all the world at this point. He was speaking to the people who had responded to his call to come to the mountain. Now, there are actually two things that I see here in this portion. And we'll get to them here shortly. First of all is worshiping on the mountain. Secondly is working in the field. But before we go and work, we need to, first of all, come and worship. And this Great Commission is spoken specifically 
to those people. Val Yoder shared a story one time that I think emphasizes this aspect of the fact that the Great Commission was spoken here to a specific group of people. And in the story that he told, he said there was a certain high school in which, uh, maybe I should give a little bit of a disclaimer here, I am not advocating um, service in the armed forces, but I think you'll be able to get the analogy from the, uh, the point of the, uh, the story here. In this high school, public high school, there was a certain day when a representative from several different branches of the military came to give a presentation to the students trying to get their interest to recruit students for the military. And uh, there was a representative there from the Army, from the Navy, from the Air Force, and from the Marines. And they had a little display set up at the back of the room. But first of all, they were going to each give a presentation. And the moderator at the beginning specifically told these representatives, you each have 15 minutes. Because when one hour is up, the students will be dismissed. So I'm giving each of you 15 minutes. So first of all, the uh, army representative got up and he tried as hard as he could to convince the student body that they should join the army. He wanted to gather as many recruits as he could. He was talking about all the advantages. We can give you further education. You can have great experiences and really going on all the advantages. He talked for about 20 minutes. And then the Air Force representative got up and again, he was talking about the opportunities to travel the world and the great opportunities. And he was really going on about all that you can benefit from joining the Air Force. And he talked about 20 minutes. Well, the Navy representative gave his presentation. And by the time he was done, there was only about two minutes left. So the Marine recruiter got up, faced the audience, and he didn't say a word. He just looked over the audience. Looking at people. Didn't say a word. It was silent. Finally, at the end, he said, I see two, maybe three people in this entire audience that might be able to be a Marine. And if you think you're that person, you can meet me at the table afterwards. Thank you. The moderator got up and he dismissed the group. Guess where everyone went? They all went to the Marine table display. Now he made no, he, he made it very clear. We are not looking for just anyone. We are looking for special people. You see, the Marines are recognized as the toughest, the strongest, the most resistant part of the military. And their special forces go in where other branches of the military fear to tread. They call themselves the few, the proud, the Marines. And their recruiting slogan is, maybe you can be one of us. See, they're saying not just anyone can be a Marine. The army was saying, ah, join the army, be all you can be. You know, we'll take you, we'll make the best of whatever we get. They don't say it in those words. But the Marines are saying, maybe, not just anyone can be a Marine. And I kind of see Jesus standing here on this mountain. And he's looking at this select group of people. 
And he's saying, maybe you can be one of us. There are some qualifications to meet. There is a boot camp that you need to go through. You need to meet God on the mountain before you are ready to serve God in the field. And if you meet God, then go ye therefore and teach all nations. So my focus here this morning is in verses 16 and 17. The 11 disciples went away into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And Jesus came and spake unto them, the people that knew what it was to worship God in the mountain, he spoke unto them, and he said to them, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations. So we're looking at called to the mountain. I have several, several points here I want to cover. First of all is the call to worship. Jesus was calling his people. And we see there are two aspects here. First of all is worshiping on the mountain, which comes before working in the field. You see, God is not interested in enticing people into his forces with stories of adventure and excitement. He is looking for people whose eyes are fixed on him, people who are dedicated to him and him alone. Someone has said that God routes the enemy with the 1% of the people that are 100% committed to him. That is God, that is who God is looking for this morning, the call to worship. We're going to be focusing in this morning's message on the value of worship. As we come to the mountain, we meet God, we focus on him, we worship. What is the significance of, of worship. That's what we'd like to look at next. What is the significance of worship? First of all, people were created to worship. Now, if you do a study in Genesis chapter 2, the creation account, you see how that God created the world, the animals, all the different creatures, trees, birds, and everything. And then God created man. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, God breathed into him the breath of life. Now, if you do a study of some of those Hebrew meanings there, it's very interesting. In the Old Testament, there is one word, one Hebrew word, that is translated two different ways in English. And the two different ways that is translated is breath and spirit. If you go back earlier in Genesis, it says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That very word sometimes is translated in our Bibles as breath. So I guess we could say the breath of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here it says God breathed into man the spirit or the breath of life. But that very word in other places is translated spirit. So we could say that God breathed into man the spirit of life. That is what makes man different than any part of creation. See, the spirit within you is the breath of God. Now, what happens when you try to hold your breath? You can hold your breath for a while. You may be able to hold it for a minute, maybe a little bit longer. But eventually, it gets to the point where you just can't help but just letting that breath Exhaling that breath. You can just not keep it in yourself any longer. If you can't release it, you're going to die. And the spirit that is within us 
needs to be expressed. And the spirit that is within us is going to be expressed. The question is, how is it going to be expressed and who is going to be the focus of that express? We'll talk more about that later. But we are created to worship and we will worship. People are created to worship. Furthermore, the church is called to worship. Now, I just read the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. And many times we think of, of missions as perhaps being one of the primary responsibilities of the church to, to go out and evangelize the world. And I'm not necessarily here to argue with that. But there's an interesting quote that I would like to present to you. And this quote is by John Piper. I haven't read a lot of his books. I, I can't, you know, I don't know a lot of what he teaches, but I do know he has a few good quotes. And this is one of them. Notice what he says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Now, as you think about that, would you put worship on a higher level of responsibility than missions? Let's look at what he says. The reason missions exist is because worship doesn't. Think about that. We're, we're going here. Worship is the ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over and countless missions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Let's just look at that quote. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, if everyone on this earth would be worshiping God, missions would not be necessary. Missions are simply a means to an end, and that end is to get people to worship God. Worship is the ultimate, not missions, because God is the ultimate, not man. Worship focuses on God. When the age is over and countless missions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. There is coming a day when missions will cease, but worship will go on throughout eternity. So missions are not an end to themselves. They are simply a means to bring people to the point of worshiping God. Worshiping God is significant. I think the reason some people struggle with the idea of missions or getting involved in missions is because, first of all, they struggle in this area of worship. They do not know what it means to worship God for who he is. They have not learned to worship. I think every aspect of the Christian's work can be described as bringing people to the point where they worship God for who he is. Now let's go back to our outline. The significance of worship. People were created to worship. The church is called to worship. Furthermore, Christian service is preceded by worship. And there are many accounts in the scriptures where it emphasizes the fact that before people serve God, they worship God. Matthew 28, I already pointed that out, how that the people worshipped. The, the disciples were called to the mountain to worship, and then they were called to go and work. Other examples. The book of Ezra. You might think the book of Ezra is a boring book, one of those Old Testament books that are squeezed in there somewhere, gives a bunch of history. The book of Ezra is an exciting book. This is a, a climax in the history of the Israelite people as they were brought back 
from captivity back to their homeland, rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah, rebuilding the temple in Ezra. This was an exciting period. And in Ezra, there were groups of people who came back, and their scope was to rebuild the temple. See, there was a work to be done. This was their work. But as you read the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3 in particular, it's very interesting what those Jews did. Now, if you're going back to build, you need to go there. You need to prepare the site. There's all kinds of construction work you need to do. Is that what they focused on first? No. The first thing they did when they got back to to Jerusalem is to rebuild the altar, to reestablish that connection with God. And then they offered burnt sacrifices, and they observed the feast. See, that was even more important than building the temple, reestablishing that worship with God. And if you read carefully, it appears that this worship service lasted for about seven months before the building actually began. See, worship precedes work. Learning to recognize God for who he is and just focusing on him and and developing that connection with God. Another example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, very uh, interesting account. Just uh, be referring to that briefly. If you care to turn to it, you may. In this account, King Jehoshaphat was facing a formidable enemy that was totally overwhelming to his small army. This enemy was coming, and Jehoshaphat and his people were overwhelmed. So what did he do? This army is coming. There's work to be done, right? You've got to go out there, and you've got to defend yourself. Jehoshaphat had his priorities in order. The first thing he did, he had a prayer meeting. He called the people together, and he expressed their need to God. And he said, God, we have no might against this company that cometh against us. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. He focused on God before he was focusing on the work that needed to be done. After the prayer meeting, they had a worship service. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, doesn't that sound kind of ironic? You have this huge army bearing down on you, approaching you, getting closer. Your lives are at stake. Your nation is at stake. Your families are at stake. So what do you do? Well, let's gather together and have a worship service. You know, it seems kind of uh, removed from reality, doesn't it? But no, his focus was on God, and he was worshiping God. What did he do next? This army was coming, so he needed to go out and face the army. Who did he send out to face the army? He sent out a bunch of singers right in the front of his army. And they went out marching and singing, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Can you just imagine that scene? Here comes this army, and you just march out. Praise the Lord, his mercy endureth forever. But you see where their focus was? Worshiping the Lord, and God gave them a beautiful promise. Believe in the Lord God, and you shall, be a, uh, you shall be established. And when they began to sing and to praise, God did the work. God smote the enemy. 
So much of our work is when we try to do the work, we put forth the effort. But when our focus is on God, we allow him to do the work in his way. Amen. Their focus was on God. Our spiritual warfare, I think, would be much more efficient, much more effective if we spent more time focusing on God, worshiping him for who he is. I wonder if perhaps one of the first questions on an application for VS service or mission service should be, describe your worship life. What's your relationship between you and God? You see, until we know what it is to worship God, face to face, we are not prepared to work for him and to meet him. Another aspect of the significance of worship is we are going to spend eternity worshiping God. The Bible is full of accounts of God being worshiped, culminating in the book of Revelation. Now, perhaps the book of Revelation scares you. Perhaps you read that, you think there's too much you don't understand, too many strange beasts and symbols and all kinds of things. But read the book of Revelation sometime, just looking for the accounts of worship and looking for the descriptions of who God is, and it will give new meaning to the book. It's just filled with God being worshipped by beasts, by elders, by angels, by creatures in heaven and in earth. You see, worship will go on forever and ever and ever. Don't you think it would be good to get started now? If we expect to be part of that number there, we'd better be prepared now. I'd like to move on to the third main point and spend some time uh, looking at this yet. Who is the recipient of our worship? We saw the call to worship, the significance of worship, why we worship. Now, who is going to receive your worship? You see, the question is not if you are going to worship. We are created to worship and we will worship. We will express our loyalty to something. Who is going to be the recipient of our worship? There's a quote here by a man by the name of Paul Lloyd. He says, we all worship every day. We are all saying to something that this or that is worth me, my time, my money, and my life. Every day we say by our actions what it is that we deem to have worth. We have put the idea of worship into a religious box. That hinders us from grasping what worship really is. Worship is not an event that takes place only on Sunday morning. We are programmed to find value in something and give ourselves to that. My question is, to what are you giving yourself this morning? I read uh, an account recently about uh, some of this new technology and new gadgetry. Uh, supposedly, there's a, a lawnmower with a GPS unit built into that lawnmower, and you can program that GPS unit to the parameters of your property, your yard, and then set this mower loose, and it just goes back and forth with inside these boundaries that you set for it and mows everything within that area. Now, suppose the GPS unit in that mower got messed up. 
what would happen? Would that mower suddenly turn into a tiller and go till your garden? Would it turn into a snowblower and blow the snow off your driveway? No, that mower would still be a mower and it would still mow grass. If the GPS unit got, max, mix, got messed up, it would just start mowing off mom's flowers or maybe go across the neighbor's yard and mow off his flowers or grass or go off down the street. But it's still going to be a mower and it's still going to mow everything it comes into contact with. Now I use that as an illustration to people. You see, we have something programmed within us. We are built to worship and we are going to worship. The problem is sometimes our GPS unit gets messed up. That doesn't mean we stop worshiping. It just means that our worship turns to something else instead of to God. Man will worship something. The question is, what are we worshiping? You know, this has been illustrated time and time again throughout history. Um, people worship. The children of Israel met the pagan nations. They were worshiping their idols. Paul met the Gentile nations. Mars Hill and Athens, for example, they were worshiping. They had their idols that they were worshiping. Missionaries traveling to primitive tribes all over the world, they worship. They have their gods that they worship. The question was not if they were going to worship, but what or who they were going to worship. Do we not see the same thing in our society today as we look around us? We do not see temples built to Baal or Dagon or Molech or Diana or Jupiter or Mars. We do not worship the sun or the moon. But what do we worship? I'd just like you to think about that. What are some things that you or what are some things that I am inclined to worship? Do we worship our jobs? You know, our jobs tend to dictate our schedules. How often does my work schedule cut into my time with God? And I'm not pointing fingers here. I'm, I'm speaking to myself as well. We have a late night. We have a busy agenda. We, have a, we know we're going to have a full day. So we just don't take that time with God in the morning that we should take. It's very easy for our workplace to take a place in our hearts that only God should have. What about technology and the things that come along with it? You know, I get up in the morning, so I need to check my emails. I need to check the news, and then I find this interesting story, and it leads me off to some other story. And before I know it, it's time to leave for work, and I didn't even open my Bible. Is that something you struggle with? Something you find familiar? Is that something that we are worshiping, something that is taking our attention? What does take higher priority in your life? If you have time for only one or the other, which are you going to choose? That says a lot about our priorities. Some of us can get pretty involved in sports activities of various forms, whether it's following your favorite team, knowing the whole lineup, do you know them as good as the books of the Bible? Better? Do you know their schedules better than what the Bible has 
to present to you? Or are your heroes the heroes that God presents to you? I wonder sometimes what God thinks about the attention we give to some of these men that can hit a ball farther than another man can. Of what eternal significance is that that is worthy of our worshiping these people? Not to mention the very immoral lifestyles many of them live. Some of us worship beauty. We worship beauty in our homes, in what we wear, how we appear. We may worship pleasure. Our culture today puts a high priority on just having a good time. And understand me that I'm not saying that these things are wrong in themselves. They may have their place, but do they take a place that is too high in our lives? Who is receiving our worship? Who is the recipient of our worship? I'd like to remind you that this aspect of worship has been a struggle, I think, for every group of people throughout history. Who we worship, what we worship. Every culture has had its gods. And I wonder if, if God would record the history of his people today. He would not record the history of our struggle with Baal or the gods of the Philistines or the gods of the Canaanites, but he probably would record our struggle with the gods of America. The American dream, pleasure, ease, whatever it is. Did you realize that this struggle of worship was even a struggle for Jesus himself? So if it's a struggle for you, don't feel that you're the only one. When the Bible says that Jesus was tempted, I believe that that's exactly what it means, that he was tempted. That's what it says. The Bible says he was tempted to fall down and worship Satan that he might gain the kingdoms of the world. Face it, when we see the kingdoms of the world, they are a temptation. The Bible says they were a temptation to Jesus and they are a temptation to us. May we remember the words of Jesus himself. He says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Where is our service? Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 6. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. My goal for you this weekend is that you can... Come to the mountain where you can see God in a new way. And in our next two sessions, we're going to just look at, at meeting God and learning more of who he is, who he has for us. And when you get to know God in that way, may your response just simply be to worship him, 
to keep that communication between you and him open so that then you are prepared to go forth and serve him. Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. I think we'll take a break now and then uh, move into the next sec- session. So, um, uh, Clayton, I'll let you handle that however you want to. Maybe if you want to give a five or ten minute break to just leave people, uh, get themselves awake again, and then we'll continue from there. <laughs>